an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, why do local history museums and historical societies like Facebook so much? We saw that there's a value to it, and then um, especially with COVID, it was, it, was, um, it was just vital, really. And then, from the archives, exploring the mysteries of the extreme winter of 1861 and 1862. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington, an evergreen playground blessed by an unusual variety of natural attractions. The towering mountains, the modern, friendly city, the innumerable rivers and lakes. <laughs> I love you it. Had to go. You had to go for a long time. I like that. We I really hear it. the whole intro like I that. wanted to <laughs> hear it all. It's the first time I've heard the whole thing. A resident historian, Felix Bunnell, joining us Friday mornings for All Over the Map. A quick look at the stories behind the names of the local places. We're talking about a group of residents of the San Juan Islands, and they're trying to rename Harney Channel. Tell us more about that. Yeah, Harney Channel is a passage that lies between Orcas Island and Shaw Island in the eastern part of the San Juans. It's about a half mile in width, roughly two miles long. It's named for General William S. Harney of the U.S. Army, and that's printed on thousands of maps and charts, of course. General Harney was the highest-ranking Army officer in Washington Territory back in 1859 when the so-called Pig War broke out on San Juan Island, and that nearly led to a real war between the U.S. and Great Britain. That summer, an American settler shot a Berkshire boar, that's B-O-A-R, belonging to the Hudson's Bay Company. The British government nearby Victoria intervened, and then so did the U.S. Army from nearby Fort Bellingham. Now, ownership of the San Juans was disputed at that time because language in the Treaty of 1846, which had settled the boundary between American and British territory in the Northwest, was vague about which was the main navigation channel in those waters. And the dispute was peacefully settled by the Kaiser of Germany in 1872, but only after a 10-year joint occupation of the islands by British and American troops. It's a fascinating story. Now, a group of residents, they're objecting to the memorializing General Harney in a petition the Washington State Committee on Geographic Names to instead call the passage Cayu Channel after Henry Cayu. He was born on Orcas Island in 1869 and lived there until he died at age 90. And he was, by all accounts, a good guy and an active member of the community. Why do they believe Harney's name should be removed? Well, to get some background, I spoke with Cyrus Foreman. He's the lead interpretive ranger at San Juan Islands National Historic Park. The early 19th century was obviously a more violent and a more racist time than our own, and we should all be grateful for that. But even in his time period, Harney would would be considered an outlier and on the extreme. So in addition to bringing the U.S. to the brink of war with Britain, General Harney's believed to be responsible for a number of violent acts. In 1834, he beat to death an enslaved woman. Uh, earlier in his career, he was court-martialed for beating soldiers under his command. And, and Cyrus Foreman says Harney was particularly known for his brutality toward indigenous people, including one notorious episode in what's now Nebraska in 1855. His behavior at the Battle of Ash Hollow, where a group of predominantly Brule Sioux people tried to surrender to him, and he ambushed and burnt their village and kidnapped the residents of that village uh, as hostages, was notable in terms of being the greatest atrocity that the United States military had committed at that point in time against Native American people. 
So a pretty clear record of a lot of really bad things yeah. that, uh, that yeah. Arnie did. Now, the State Committee on Geographic Names, they've accepted the proposal for final consideration from the residents, and they're currently gathering input from the public. We'll have a link at My Northwest where you can uh, give input if you like. And Ken Carrasco, one of the organizers of that effort, told me the committee could possibly take action as soon as April of next year. And next year's a big one. It's the 150th anniversary of the resolution of the Pig War. Uh, the, uh, the anniversary is in October. And Cyrus Foreman at the National Park told me there'll be a whole bunch of special activities beginning as early as late spring. Definitely worth paying a visit to the San Juans uh, this summer. And really, this is recent history. It's only two lifetimes ago. It seems like a long time yeah. ago, but really, the non-native history here is so fresh, like it just happened yesterday. Right. So the argument basically, oh, well, it's always been the Harney Channel. I mean, yeah, I, it I, really hasn't always been. I, I don't think there's a big constituency looking to preserve yeah. the name Harney. I think the Harney name will go away and it will be called Caillou Channel probably yeah. before too long. It sounds good. Felix, thank you very much. Thank you. Facebook has been taking a lot of heat lately. There's whistleblowers, politicians investigating. I mean, the spread of misinformation, the issues with the election, and of course, the algorithm that rewards conflict and negativity. I know that uh, we talk about this a lot. Resident historian Felix Bennell is in the studio now. Lost in all this fact, apparently, groups concerned with local history have actually become dependent on the social media platform. You're here to tell us more about this report brought to you this morning by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Felix, good morning. Good morning, Travis. Yeah, this is a little bit of a crackpot theory of mine. You know, my time working for a museum that was Mohai here in Seattle was before the age of social media. And about 20 years ago for a Christmas exhibit about the old Frederick and Nelson department store, a volunteer named Roger Van Osten came up with a brilliant idea to invite people to bring their vintage Frederick and Nelson Santa photos to the museum to add to the display. I thought maybe a dozen families would do this, but we got some good stories in the newspaper, and when it was all said and done, about 200 people had dropped off their precious photos from the 40s to the 80s, made the gallery look great, and in retrospect, now this is a crackpot part, it was kind of like a pre-Facebook Facebook post. People were sharing photos and posting them in the gallery, and people were liking them and looking, looking at them. You know, it was all very yeah. real life. And so now I think it's museums and historical societies, when they do their Facebook pages right, that are probably the best fit for how Facebook is supposed to work. I think it works better than for an art museum or for, for a theater. I mean, history is where it's at. For example, Mohai can post an official archival photo of the Space Needle. Then anybody can like that post and add their own family photo of visiting the Needle during the World's Fair and write about their memories. This might be obvious, but that mixture of official and amateur, you know, the images and the memories, that creates a dialogue that I think meshes with the goals of history groups more than almost any other type of organization. So I reached out to several places to try to test this theory. Uh, Juliana Verbort is the Marketing and Communications Director for the Washington State History Museum in Tacoma. She says she's aware of the negative comments or the trolls that can occasionally pop up in the museum's Facebook posts, but that's not really a factor for them. I mean, they use Facebook as an information resource. It's not about trying to pile up likes or shares. I don't appreciate that negativity draws the most attention, but I also... I'm fortunate to be in a position where I'm not trying to generate negative content so that I can draw a lot of attention. What I want to do is, is be of service to the people who have an interest in history. You know, I also checked with uh, Cindy Fraser at the Lake Stevens Historical Society east of Everett. They use Facebook for sharing basic information. But because of the realities of local journalism here in 2021, Cindy's actually intentionally made their Facebook page something of a witness to local current events, like the construction of the new Costco up there, which has some controversy, I guess but also with an eye to future historians as well. We saw that there's a value to it. And then um, especially with COVID, it was, it, was, um, it was just vital, really. It was a way to keep everybody informed about current events, and which will someday be history, because we lost our town newspaper several years ago, and there's no way to document the history that's going on. 
And um, that was the big impetus to, to keep posting things on here and try to make sure you have things that, you know, in the in the future people will wonder, well, hey, what happened with this? Because there's no, no documentation. And I love that idea of a, of a history museum keeping track of what's going on so people can look at it years from now. Now, one thing that's not clear is how that Facebook material, or if it will still be accessible 5, 10, or 50, or 100 years from now, but it's a terrific idea to have the information and the comments. I mean, that, to have that from 100 years ago would be amazing right now. Yeah. Um, there's also a really practical side to how Lake Stevens Historical Society used its Facebook page to push out content. You know, the city of Lake Stevens is in the process of reinventing itself, so the society lost its museum building a few years ago. Cindy Fraser says Facebook has become sort of this vital link. And so now we're in storage in an old fire station, and uh, everything's boxed up. And and so Facebook was kind of only way to really get information out there, tell people what you know that we're still alive, but we don't have a museum right now. And I found that to be true for several organizations that don't have their own physical facility. Facebook is sort of their virtual gallery. Now, one thing that's been happening since way before Facebook is people donating artifacts to local museums. Just And then this would happen at Mohai. People would call me, I'd talk to them, they'd bring stuff in. But Facebook's become a factor, and sometimes it's indirectly through pages not run by the museums themselves, but that are devoted to local history or related topics, like there's Seattle Vintage or History of Puget Sound Surrounds. Now, Emily Miller is a senior curator at Hebold Cultural Center on the Tulalip Reservation up by Marysville. There was a Facebook group called um, Family Treasures Found or something, and someone had shared a photo that they found, I think, at a garage sale or something and looking for more information on it. So they posted it to that Facebook group, and then that Facebook group moderator contacted us because it turned out to be a Tulalip photo, and it was a photo from like 1919 or something, and then the woman who found it at the garage sale ended up donating it to us. And that's great. That was impossible before social media. Now, I also spoke with Stephanie Johnson-Tolliver. She's president of the Black Heritage Society of Washington and a good friend of the show. She told me that Facebook gets credit for a cool-sounding donation they recently accepted. It's one of these Mixmaster milkshake machines. It was from Bishop's Pharmacy, Ooh. which was up on Jackson Street. Cool. Back, yeah, It was a black-owned business, and it was listed in the Green Book, which was that famous yeah. book that was uh-huh. published telling where black motors yeah. could find friendly businesses. And so they wouldn't have gotten that donation without this Facebook thing coming about. And beating the bushes for artifacts like that is especially critical for groups like the Black Heritage Society that focus on parts of the population who may have been ignored for decades by the big history institutions. Now, Stephanie also told me there's another reason that Facebook and local history fit so well together, maybe because of the average age of Facebook users these days. Um, She says posting materials fosters meaningful dialogue with the audience, and the instant feedback helps a volunteer like herself feel inspired to keep going. Sometimes even with that little like that somebody gives you, it's a way for you to take the temperature of what's happening out there. So, you know, posting, you know, the smallest piece of history or the biggest piece of history, when you see that little heart pop up, you're like, yeah, you know, somebody, somebody gets it, you know, they love it. They love it. So it's kind of like, you know, it keep, it kind of keeps you going, you know, it's like, okay, I got to get more. <laughs> so, I mean, it's there's it's, it's, it's this thing about, like, if an art museum posts a picture, you know, a Picasso picture or something, you don't have the, the Picasso thing you drew yourself to yeah. post and share. But if they post a picture of the Seattle waterfront and you were there 40 years ago with your grandparents, you can post that and share it. And there's this cool dialogue that only local history is, is creating on Facebook. And, you know, I'm not an apologist for Facebook. I realize all the bad stuff about it. And my hope is that stuff will get worked out because the idea of this resource, all this stuff being collected by these people who aren't being paid to do it, going away someday and not being accessible 50, 100 years from now, that's, 
that's almost tragic. So there, there's, there's some pieces of this equation that aren't figured out yet, but it's you can't turn away from the fact that Facebook is doing some amazing things for local history groups. There's a lot of things about social media that make me crazy. But yeah, nostalgia yeah. is one of the things I love. I mean, that's yeah. one of the things that if I post on Twitter a question, do you remember this? And people go nuts for it. They love it. Yeah, yeah. So my question, though, is how do these museums, do they fact check any? I mean, because, you know, people's crowdsourced memories are faulty or maybe they have a picture that they don't actually know what it is. And they're like, oh, this is a thing. And it's not like how do you make sure because, you know, they curate their exhibits in, in real life. Do they curate their Facebook pages? They, they're they aware of stuff. I don't see museums actively correcting things, but if somebody's posting something, they can't really be – they don't take responsibility for it. Yeah. That's, there is a sort of this disconnect that happens on Facebook where you have a sort of a um, – you're forgiven if somebody comments on your post with something inaccurate. And what drives me crazy – I love nostalgia a little bit, but when it's the middle of September and someone posts a picture about Christmas yeah. or it's summertime <laughs> and somebody posts a big snowstorm, yeah. I just think, no, no, I guess it's the media part. I want to mediate the story. Yeah. I want to have topical stories that are timely, stuff that's purely nostalgic. Drives me bananas on Facebook. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, the winter of 1861-1862 was one of the most extreme on record in the Pacific Northwest. Looks like a cold, cold winter. Plenty of ice and snow, but we'll keep the love light in our hearts aglow. Looks like a Dean long, Bing Crosby, local boy, born in Tacoma, raised in Spokane. Couldn't figure it was Bing Crosby, Dean Martin, Perry Combs. <laughs> They're kind so. of all the same. <laughs> I think they're real subtle. Yeah, the nuances there are hard to get some. That's right. <laughs> Felix Spinell is here. There are only a few days of summer left, of course, but we've already had plenty of unsettled weather. But if you want the really stormy stuff, you have to go way back to the winter of 1861-62, and one local scientist has done just that. Felix is brought to us by the King County Library System. Yeah, you know, the history of extreme weather around here is pretty well documented, going back to the late 19th century. You know, you got the Columbus Day storm of 1962, the blizzard of 1916, even that big snow of 1880. There's official weather records, diary entries, newspaper accounts, and photographs. Before 1880, though, the records are pretty spotty. And that's why Larry Schick, longtime King 5 weatherman and later a scientist for the Army Corps of Engineers, got excited when he made a discovery. I was totally thrilled. I mean, I was so, I was so excited because a lot of this is a treasure hunt, you know, and this was one of the big things of treasure hunts. And, uh, and when I find you have it, and I thought, wow, you've got to... You gotta send you know copies to me right now, you know, because I had looked all over Washington. Nobody had it here. Weather Service, UW, nobody had it. But I knew it existed because I saw it referenced. And what Larry had finally tracked down was a report from the Secretary of War, published in 1888. He struck Pater at UC Berkeley, which is one of the older colleges west of the Rockies. Now, in this report are detailed weather observations from U.S. Army forts all over the Northwest, going back as early as the 1840s. What he was specifically looking for was data, you know, real numbers about that epic winter of 1861-1862. And this weather data was collected not by meteorologists, but by Army surgeons. This was back when weather was considered to have a direct relation to health. And what was it about the winter of 1861-1862 that made it so worth chasing down? People here saw some of the biggest storminess along the West Coast, really from Washington, Oregon, and California, that really we've ever seen. It, it's not that we haven't seen bigger storms or maybe even deeper cold, but the consistency of it was so huge. And the peak 
flows of the rivers, especially in Oregon and California, were like something we have not seen before. The cold here was incredible here in the Pacific Northwest. But it was a progression of things that happened over about eight weeks. Yeah, and the period we're talking about is uh, roughly late November 1861 to early February of 1862. But there was snow on the ground um, as late as June in parts of eastern Washington, in the shady parts over by Walla Walla. Now, there were huge floods in Oregon, especially southern Oregon, and in northern California. Here in Washington Territory, which until 1863 included all of present-day Idaho, so that's when we were, those were our glory days. It was more about snow and extreme cold. So Seattle, uh, during that time, I got a variety of temperatures. I had a woodland park, which is up by the zoo, temperature of four below zero. Downtown Seattle was about two below zero. And kind of the modern record is near zero. It is zero at SeaTac. And so we're close to that. Uh, East of the mountains, much colder, and the cold lasted a long time. Uh, I had 29 degrees below zero in Walla Walla. Yeah, so that's pretty cold. And the cold from that winter of 1861-62 lingered in people's memories. Now, historian Clarence Bagley... He wrote his three-volume history of Seattle in 1916, and he said this, quote, Fruit trees were killed in many orchards, and large numbers of livestock died from the severity of the weather. In Seattle, ice six inches thick covered all of Lake Union, and the snow lay on the ground 13 weeks. The mercury fell below zero several times, unquote. Now, there was huge loss of livestock, especially east of the Cascades because of the months of cold and deep snow. They just couldn't get to the, the grass to eat it. And in Oregon and California, because of these massive floods. As for humans, Larry Schick says there's no comprehensive list of casualties, he estimates the number of people who died is somewhere between dozens and hundreds. Now, in that Secretary of War's report that he tracked down, Larry did find some interesting things in the data. He spotted one wintertime pattern in 1861 that would sound very familiar to Puget Sound residents in 2019. I could pick out these atmospheric rivers, these Pineapple Express warm and wet patterns that really caused most of our flooding. I could pick those out really easy. And it was easy to pick one out in Vancouver, Washington in early December of 1861. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It was 59 degrees in the morning, early December. It's never that warm. There's only one thing that can do that, and that's an atmospheric river, what we call Pineapple Express, too. These warm and very wet Hawaiian storms that uh, give us our biggest rains and our flooding in the Pacific Northwest. And that was, when I saw that, in Vancouver, Washington, that observation, I said, that's it. And sure enough, the papers, big floods the next two days, huge flood. We've never seen anything like it. Yeah, and I asked him, what about seeing something like it again? Is the winter of 1861, 1862 part of a cycle that might repeat someday? In this case, I think it was just a random event. You know, I think that winter was just random. It was extreme. And it's not like the individual storms aren't close to something we've already seen. I think what's unusual is this concentration in this eight-week period, especially the rain when it really starts to turn on. Yeah, so Larry's working on a book about this. It'll be published sometime in the next couple of years. Um, some of the challenges, there's no known photos from that winter up here in Washington and Oregon. There's a mm-hmm. few from California. These crazy photographs of Sacramento, pretty much, you know, record high floods. Um, we do have some cool maps and related images at My Northwest. And, um, you know, I go around the state giving talks for Humanities Washington, and I'm starting off the new season next Thursday giving my weather history talk over in Ellensburg at the Kittitas County Museum. It's at 6 o'clock next Thursday evening, admission's free. So we do have all this great stuff at MyNorthwest.com about this very bizarre outlier winter of 1861-1862. And Lake Union actually froze. I've never seen yeah, Lake Union and, and freeze. That's happened a few times, not in living memory, but it's happened yeah. a few times in the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. But, yeah, and then... Columbia River froze as well. People could walk back and forth from Portland to Vancouver. There was It was just hmm. intense, deep cold for weeks. Lake Washington's never frozen? I think Lake Washington is too wide across. Probably bays probably froze, but I don't think the center part is just too deep. 
We'll keep looking in the records. Yeah, we'll ask Larry. You see never know what you'll down. find. Go down to Berkeley. See, they might have, they might have a copy. Felix Bunnell brought to us by the King County Library System. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Yes, it's raining in Seattle, baby. Please can I come home? This is Bill Curtis inviting you to tune in to KIRO Felix will enlighten you.